Welcome to episode 150 of the Women of the Military podcast. Before we begin, I wanted to say, wow, I can't believe this is episode 150. I don't know if I expected to keep going. I know I was worried in the beginning about having enough guests to continue the podcast and to already be at 150 episodes and be able to share so many stories and have so many of you listening to the podcast each week. It really inspires me to keep going, and I just want to say thank you to all my guests, thank you to all my listeners, and especially thank you to all my Patreon members who support the podcast financially and help make it so I can continue to do this. My guest this week is Lorraine Diaz. She is one of my Patreon members, and I really appreciate her support financially through the podcast. It means a lot. And she talked about how she wanted to join the military to escape her hometown when her dad told her she could only join either the Navy or the Air Force. And when she learned about how the Navy had their own Air Force within the branch, she was curious of how she could be an aircraft maintainer within the Navy. Even though she was a member of the LGBTQT plus community and knew that Don't Ask, Don't Tell was a regulation in place, she determined that she still wanted to serve and it actually was in the first year she was on active duty that Don't Ask, Don't Tell was repealed. But she talked about in the interview about how the ripple effects of that ruling or that change didn't always fix all the problems and the discrimination that people were feeling. And so we had a really interesting conversation about how Don't Ask, Don't Tell affected the military while it was a lot and after it was gone. So let's get started with this week's interview. You're listening to Season 3 of the Women of the Military Podcast. Here you will find the real stories of female service members. I'm Amanda Huffman. I am an Air Force veteran, military spouse, and mom. I created Women of the Military Podcast in 2019 as a place to share the stories of female service members past and present with the goal of finding the heart of the story while uncovering the triumphs and challenges women face while serving in the military. If you want to be encouraged by the stories of military women and be inspired to change the world, keep tuned for this latest episode of Women of the Military. podcast would like to thank Sabio Coding Bootcamp for sponsoring this week's episode. Sabio Coding Bootcamp is a top-ranked coding bootcamp that is 100% dedicated to helping smart and highly motivated individuals become exceptional software engineers. Visit their website at www.sabio.la to learn how you may be able to use your GI Bill of Benefits to train at Sabio. Your tuition and monthly BAH stipend may be paid during your training period. They are also 100% committed in helping you find your first job in tech. So don't forget to head over to www.sabio.la to learn more. Before we get started with this week's interview, I wanted to highlight the 13 members of the U.S. military who were killed last week in the suicide bombing near Karzai International Airport in Kabul, Afghanistan. And I wanted to specifically highlight the two women who were killed, Sergeant Johanny Rosario Pichardo and Sergeant Nicole L. Gee. When I deployed to Afghanistan, I was 25. Seeing Johanny's 
name and the fact that she was 25 reminded me a lot of my experience of deploying to Afghanistan and thinking about how much life has happened since coming home from Afghanistan. She was from Massachusetts and assigned to the 5th Marine Expeditionary Brigade Naval Support Activity Baran. Her service was not only crucial to evacuating thousands of women and children, but epitomizes what it means to be a Marine, putting herself in danger for the protection of American values so that others might enjoy them. She is a hero and her legacy will never be forgotten. That's what Marine First Lieutenant John Copolasid told the Boston Globe Saturday in a statement. Sergeant Nicole L. Gee was from Sacramento, California, and she was 23. She was assigned to the Combat Logistics Battalion, 24th Marine Expeditionary Unit, 2 Marine Expeditionary Force, Camp Lejeune, North Carolina. She was a ground electronics transmission system maintainer assigned to Combat Logistics Battalion 24, a subordinate unit of Combat Logistics Regiment. Her previous assignments include recruit training at Paris Island, South Carolina, School of Infantry East in Camp Lejeune, North Carolina, Aviation Accessions and Primary Military Occupational Specialty School in Pensacola, Florida, and Marine Corps Communications Electronic School in 29 Palms, California. Let's have a moment of silence for all 13 military members who were killed last week. And now let's get started with this week's interview. Welcome to the show, Lorraine. I'm so excited to have you here. Let's get started with why did you decide to join the Navy? Very excited to be here. I'm a patron, so I'm like obsessed. Amanda does some really cool stuff, everybody. So if you haven't visited her Patreon page, you need to. And she didn't ask me to do that. I did that on my own. We actually didn't even talk about it. But I decided to join the Navy because I did not have money for school. And I wanted to grow up and leave my parents' house. That's kind of the short story. The little bit longer story is I'm Puerto Rican Cuban. And so the culture is very communal. You know, it's normal for people to stay in their parents' homes for longer periods of time. For me, I kind of wanted to speed up the process of growing up and kind of form my own life. And so that's kind of how I decided to do it. How did you decide to pick Navy instead of one of the other branches? So my dad's actually a Marine or was a Marine. And he did not, when I expressed interest in the military, he specifically said, you won't be joining the Army and you will not be joining the Marines. So you can choose between the Air Force and the Navy. And when we talked more about it, he talked about airplanes and he would give me like facts. He's like, oh, well, actually, the Navy has more airplanes and they do boats. Like, that doesn't make any sense to me. But as little facts like that came out, it kind of intrigued me more. And to me, the Navy looked like a very interesting option because of the deployments. You'd be able to go and pull into ports in different places. So one day you could be in France, which actually did happen. And another day you could be in Dubai, which did happen. <laughs> the Navy has their own Air Force that, like, within the Navy that has a bunch. I didn't know that they had more planes than they had ships. That's crazy. Yeah, it's insane. It's cool. Every time I talk about it, they get like bitters. I think about the flight deck, which wasn't fun at the time, but that kind of 
when you think about it, it always brings up a lot of good memories. Well, for me personally. Yeah. And you picked a career field in aviation, right? Yeah. So in high school, I was in a magnet program for electrical engineering and I was just burned out. I was like, I don't want to look at zeros and ones. I don't want to look at how to wire stuff. I don't care. I just want to get away from that. And I knew I was really bad with my hands. My dad has always been super talented that way. And I just didn't get that. So I had to, I had to work really hard for it. And I've always wanted to be a lot like my dad. So it was like, okay, well, you know, my dad tells me you guys have airplanes. Like, do you have airplane mechanic jobs? Because they didn't have tanks. When I asked them about tanks first, they were like, that doesn't, that doesn't make any sense. And then I was like, well, you guys have more airplanes than you have boats. So that doesn't make any sense either. So then I asked about, you know, aviation maintenance and aircraft maintenance jobs. And they're like, uh, are you sure? Like, yeah. They were trying to push me to uh, like an engineering type, uh, engineering electrician, which is kind of, very similar to what I was doing that I was trying to get away from. Did you do really well on the ASVAB? So they were interested in that aspect. Is that why they were pushing you that way or? Probably. I got a 92. So I was like, mm, I got an A minus. That's not that good. They're like, no, it's really good. Like, yeah, A minus is okay. And I was not like full disclosure. I was not a good student. I did not do my homework. Like if you taught me how to do it, I learned I wasn't stupid, but I just was very lazy. Think of the practice, I got a 72 and they went crazy. I was like, dude, that's a C. That's not very good. <laughs> it's almost a D. No, it's fine. And then I took the real test and I got higher, which is not normal. But maybe the test was looped. I don't know. So you wanted to do aircraft maintenance, but they were trying to push you back into like the electrical engineering. But you were like, no, I'm done with that. And so you stuck with aircraft maintenance and that's what you did? Yes. And then you went to boot camp. Did you go after high school? Like, were you looking into it while you were going to school? Yeah. So I signed officially after I graduated in May 2010. That was a while ago. And and then 10 months later, I was, you know, winter at the Great Lakes. So it was cold. Very cold. And it sucks when you're from Florida and then you go to a really cold place where People are screaming in your face and rushing you to get ready and then go out in the cold. I mean, you get over it. Worked out. That would be really cold in the winter. <laughs> it's kind of crazy. That's where the training is. I mean, I knew that, but no one has talked about it going in the winter. <laughs> They've always talked about how hot it was. My dad got excited because he's like, oh, they had a boot camp in Orlando. You should see if they still have it. And they had closed that down during the Clinton era. So that wasn't even like remotely an option. Interesting. So did you have any challenges while going to boot camp or at tech school? Um, mostly physical, mostly physical. Uh, weight's always kind of been a problem. It still is now as an adult, but less so because I can still do my job. But it was like shin splints wearing, from wearing boots and partially collapsed <laughs> arches because I wasn't used to doing that and marching. And, uh, and I know I'm not the only one, but those are just some of the things that I didn't anticipate having to deal with that I ended up with later on down the road and then just drinking a lot of information from a fire hose (laughs) that was um for somebody that's not a super great student i had to become a super great student if i didn't want to lose my tech school or be kicked out or lose my rate or whatever so i had to buckle down which wasn't it was just a mind shift and a system creation that had to take place which did yeah, so you feel like you knew that if you didn't pass your tech school that you would fail and you'd have to do a different job. So you were like, well, I'm going to learn to be a good student. 
it kind of uh, the realization that um, if I fail, then I lose what I wanted to do wasn't an option for me. So I just studied extra and kind of started doing note cards and things that I really didn't do in high school because it wasn't important to me at the time then. I didn't really have anything tangible at stake because I, at this point I had a structure and I had a plan. That makes a lot of sense. And I think in high school, I think a lot of people get discouraged because it feels like really meaningless and pointless. And then when you have a thing that you're aiming towards and a focus, it makes it easier to, to focus and buckle down. Yeah. Like I would definitely say a lot of kids these days are smarter than they kind of give off because they get distracted. And I, I generally like to call it like the fear of options. Like you're just overwhelmed with all the options and all the choices that you have. You don't know which one's the right one because we're taught in a very binary way, you know, this is good or this is bad, but really you could have two good choices and neither are the wrong choice. They're just two choices and you just have to figure out what is more important to you and what you may like better. And I even think you mentioned how in the beginning when you were going to school, you got kind of burnt out from like all the engineering stuff you were doing. And I think sometimes we put so much pressure on our kids to do all this stuff. And it's like, maybe we should just let them be children. And like they have the whole rest of their lives to work and figure it out. Yeah. I mean, I definitely agree. I know I wanted to take a break after school and that was kind of part of what fed into me wanting to leave is when I spoke to my mom about it initially, she was like, you're not going to take a break. That's not going to happen. You won't go back to school if you take a year off. I was like, well, it's not like I'm going to sit around the house and do nothing. I'll work. And she was not a big fan of that. So I was like, I'll just remove myself from this equation. Hello, Navy. Very stubborn. Sometimes I can be hard headed, but it worked out really well. So you went to boot camp and then you got through tech school. And then where did you go for your first assignment? I went to, technically that was in between tech school. So I I stopped at a kind of like a TDY for a training squadron while I was waiting for school. So that's kind of, it was like a, hey, we can't let you sit around and do nothing for free. So you're going to report to the squadron and work for them and do whatever they tell you to do. So I got to work on baby hornets and F-18s and F-18 Supers and some other stuff. It was a training squadron in Virginia Beach, Virginia called BFA 106. After that, I went to my squadron at the boat, BFA 213, world famous Black Lions. So that was fun. I was there for about four years. Did you go on any deployment? Yeah, I went on two deployments. So it was cool because we had just, we, the Navy, had just gotten their first like Nimitz class ship or their new Nimitz class ship. And it was the CDN 77, the George H.W. Bush. And so we went on a maiden cruise. And what a maiden cruise is, is basically a show of power. It's like, ooh, look at our big shiny toy. Don't mess with us. And we're going to peruse to all these cool ports and show everybody our new toy and not to mess with us. And then Middle East started acting up again. And nope. So they're like, never mind, it's combat cruise. So it was like, we're going to go to Spain and we're going to go do all these cool things. And they're like, nope. And then I got there right as it had changed over. So I think they were like six, I want to say six months in. And I got there and it was like, hey, uh, we got another four months and we got this new trainee. And then uh, my second tour. So that was my first tour was actually in 2011. You arrived at the base and they were like, oh, your ship's out at sea. So we're going to go send you to it. Basically, yeah. Oh my goodness, that's so crazy. That was like six months ago as a civilian, like eating chips on the couch. And then and then I was on uh, a brand new aircraft carrier launching airplanes because 
things are heating up in the Middle East. It was it was like a pretty wild con. It's something you read out of a book almost, and it's like, wow, this is real life. Yeah, I met someone. Or I interviewed someone way back, like my first ten interviews, and she arrived in Japan, and they were like, "Your ship's leaving tomorrow," and she was like, "What?" And then she was on a ship, and it was like she just went to boot camp, went to tech school, and then went to Japan, and like was there for maybe twenty four hours, and then she was on a ship out to sea, and she's like, "What just happened?" That's great. I love that. Yeah, I met some people at the the training squadron I'd been to for a little bit, and they're like, "Oh, let us know when you get back." And then you know, I packed all my I packed my sea bag because that's what they call it, and went on deployment. And I was supposed to go to my shop. I was supposed to go to my rated work center, and instead, I got moved to the line shack, which is kind of like what a crew chief is, but without any of the glory. Uh, <laughs> and we had to wear brown shirts, so they called us turd shirts. So I became a third shirt for my first deployment. It was a learning experience. Yeah, it sounds like it. Did you have any like funny stories or experiences? Like that just seems so crazy that you were like, six months ago, I wasn't in the Navy and now I'm on a ship. <laughs> now I'm a ship hauling chains, hauling, you know, 75 pounds of chains on my back because that's how equal opportunity works, which is fine. I didn't complain. It was just interesting to me, like zooming out of my body, but... I'd probably say a lot of the interesting stories came from the daily interactions with different departments on the ship and uh, the flight department that we had to work with, our officers, the sirs and the ma'am, and just generally working with guys and gals from like all over the country, just like shoved in a room together. And now we have to understand each other. So it's like, I'd never even heard of chewing tobacco and I walk in and there's three guys sitting there with a fat dip in their mouth, spitting in a cup. Like, oh, they got to go up to the flight deck. One bottle falls over and they're like, you got to clean that because you're the new one. doesn't smell good. It doesn't smell good. That's funny. Now that you mentioned that, I hadn't really, like, I think I had heard of chewing tobacco, but I didn't really, like, realize what it was. And then when I was deployed, they, like, all had the bottle. And I was like, oh, that's so weird. And, like, yeah, I never knew anything about it before I joined the military. It's like, wait, everyone's drinking Cokes out of a bottle. That's weird. Like, that's not Coke. Oh, you don't want to drink that. <laughs> no, no. And it's like, you know what it is. As soon as you find out, they're like, oh, you want to dip? And then after you have to clean it up one time, like a full bottle of it, <clears throat> it was pretty gross. It is. It's so gross. Oh, that's funny. So you said you went on another deployment. How long had you been home before you left again? Usually when you're in a squadron like that, it's you kind of there's the down the downtime is right after the deployment, fixing all the airplanes, making sure people have time with their family, fixing the equipment and basically getting ready for the night, next deployment cycle. So you might have like maybe six months if it stays on that two year track. And then you guys start going on detachments and and doing all that, getting ready for the next one, getting the new pilots trained, getting the new folks trained. Um, my second deployment was different because at that point I had been in the Navy for like Oof. three years three years so by the time we went i went through a full workup cycle for our second tour on that boat the second deployment for that ship and for me and it was unique because i had the experience of going on a boat and not having any time in the navy to growing up kind of in a squadron having rank moving up to e4 and going on deployment and being able to fix aircraft and troubleshoot and change engines and change uh apus and work on fuel cells and do all kinds of really neat type of work 
and then being able to basically be not necessarily junior in the sense that I'm brand new, still junior, but have experience where when I'm on the flight deck and I make a call, they listen. They're not, unless it's a really complex problem, at that point I had been trained well enough to make a call and it be followed for the troubleshooting process rather than them having to call somebody that had 10 or 15 years in. You know, every once in a while, depending on the mission, they might call somebody for a second opinion. Kind of like when you go to the doctor and you're like, hey, is this cancer really that bad? They're like, yeah. It, they would come back and my petty officers would come back and basically make the same call. And it's like, yeah, you should have listened to me. It's almost like I know what I'm talking about. So that was really cool. It was really cool to see a full combat deployment cycle happen and be a part of the growth process to up into that point. So, and then I left <laughs> right after our deployment, after we got back to my next duty station. Which was? That was the now, I don't think the word is technically decommissioned. They kind of just turned it off. They didn't disband it forever uh, via Bay 101, Grim Reapers. So they were, I know they originally started as a VF 101, but they were basically re-stood up in Fort Walton Beach, Florida, out of Eglin Air Force Base. And they were the testing and integration squadron for the Navy for the F-35 Charlie. So we worked with contractors like Lockheed Martin. They were our reps. On their, our, they were our civilian counterparts that would basically assist us in maintenance and troubleshooting and that sort of thing. And when I showed up, it was not quite as brand new. It was still new. And Lockheed still had control of most of actually all of the aircraft when I showed up. And then I think slowly they would just release aircraft as we proved our competency. And that was at Aiklin? Yes, ma'am. So interesting that you would be at Air Force Base while serving in the Navy. But yeah. That's the way it goes. <laughs> they had a lot of joint joint force type stuff going on there. Like a lot, a lot. Especially for EOD, EOD guys. Because it was like our squadron, then right next to us was the our Air Force equivalent with their alphas and their... Those airplanes have the tiniest little landing gear because they don't have to land on a boat. They don't have to be chunky. And it just looks like they missed leg day for all of their entire lives. So those aircraft just look weird to me. <laughs> Ain't got no legs. And then the schoolhouse was there. And then right next to there, it was like EOD always doing their bomb stuff. And I think there's the special ops communities there, too. There's a lot of stuff going on at England. Yeah, it's a hot spot for sure. They even have that really neat temperature control hangar. Which actually uh, had an explosion when I was working on the flight line, <laughs> right before I transferred out. So, did you ever deploy out of there, or because it was kind of a different mission? You guys were like taking over and learning F thirty five C. Is that what you said? Yes, ma'am. So basically, how the Navy works—they changed it right after I transferred. But it's a four on deployment and then three shore duty for your CDD so you get rest. If there are surgeries that need to happen, like you have to do back surgeries or knee surgeries to fix you up, to make you go in the next deployment cycle, that's kind of what that's for. It changes depending on your job. Some jobs, they require you to be at sea for six years and you get, you know, two years downtime. It, it just changes. I think recently when I left, it was a 5-3 rotation. They had upped it because they I just lost a aircraft carrier in the rotation, so they had to kind of elongate everyone's time a little bit more to fill in the gap. You can't really build a ship overnight and then have it deploy, you know, with a crew that isn't trained on it. But yes, the mission was different. Um, we were shore duty at that time. I had come from a sea duty squadron. 
That makes sense. I mean, I interview enough Navy people. I should know all this, but I always forget. (laughs) It's a lot. It's a lot to remember. I actually interview, I feel like, more Coast Guard people, which there's less of them. But for some reason, I interview more Coast Guard people than uh, Navy people. So then I get even more confused because they're they're different than the Navy. And so, yeah. Well, you know what it is, right? Why I interview more women or why it's different? No, why, why you interview more Coast Guard people. No, why? They have to, you know, put themselves out there and be remembered as a branch of service <laughs> rather than the redheaded stepchild. Somebody from the Coast Guard is going to watch this and be like, screw you. <laughs> Let him come for me. I just learned so much about the military through doing all these stories. And, and then I realized I still have a lot more to learn. So was that your last assignment or did you transfer again? No, no. After that, I was um, done. I did six and a half years in and I had decided that it wouldn't make sense to restart later rather than sooner. So I made the decision to get out. So you, you were you just done with the military and ready to move on with the rest of your life? Kind of. It, it was a, a sucky choice to make because I kind of realized that Instead of being taken care of by our superiors, we were just kind of like tossed to the side. And if we made it, we made it to, you know, retirement. And if we didn't, it didn't really matter. I can't say that's necessarily the case. I've had some really fantastic mentors, like phenomenal. Like one of my old chiefs, Michael Thurber, he's actually an FAA inspector and he's doing great. The dude's a rock star. Nicest guy you'll ever meet. He'll give you crap all day, but he phenomenal, phenomenal guy. Michelle Korab, she changed her name after um, her divorce. Awesome chief. Awesome, awesome chief. Chief Peebles, like just tons. I, I could literally go all day and tell you about all the amazing people that have mentored me along the way, whether they be higher ranking or my peers or sometimes even people that are lower ranking that have a lot more life experience. But what really did it for me, too, was the year that we, 2016, my mom was starting to get kind of funky. And closer to Thanksgiving time, she just was like always in bed, always very sick. And I remember when I came for Thanksgiving, she was like pale white, like paler than I am right now. And I was like, yeah, I can't go on another deployment because at that point, my rotation for sure duty would be over and I would have to go before deployed squadron. And I was just like, uh, this is enough for me to say, I don't want to miss time that I won't get back. You know, it's different when you're gone for years and years at a time, as opposed to, oh, I haven't seen my mom in two weeks, you know, but I can drive over to her house, which I can do now because she lives in Maitland and I live in Orlando. And after that, I came back from, from Thanksgiving leave. And I was like, Hey, listen, uh, I'm going to get out. (laughs) I'm done. So shortly after that, that was the end of 2016, 2017. In August, that was my transfer out of the military, become a civilian, become a people again and put on my, you know, people cloak. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I think there's a lot of challenges with serving in the military and the sacrifice. And especially when your family isn't doing well and you can see it, it makes and you know on the horizon what was coming because you knew you were going to go back to a sea duty and you weren't going to be you wouldn't have the stability that you had had uh, while at Aglan. Definitely. And one thing I wanted to talk about that we kind of skipped over was that Don't Ask, Don't Tell was repealed while you were in. 
I mean, I think it had an impact on everyone, but I really would love to hear about your experience and what it meant to you and what it means to you today. So, I mean, I, I guess I can say fortunate, not even guess. I can say fortunately, I wasn't super, super long in the military when it had been repealed. I want to say it was like six months I was in basically as I was heading out to see her, as soon as I got to see, it was like, bam, don't ask, don't tell was repealed. Up until that point, there had been talks about it, but you'd hear some people say, well, you better, not to me specifically, but you still better be careful because if somebody so-and-so doesn't like you, they can still transfer you out because that's still the rule, which is absolutely insane to know that somebody can use the law against you to ruin your entire career and change your paperwork getting out because it wouldn't be an honorable discharge. If you were lucky, it would be an other than honorable. Well, not lucky. If you were lucky, it'd be like a general or an admin, but it wouldn't say honorable. There's a potential to lose benefits depending on how that paperwork is coded and how much, how spiteful that that other person wanted to be in in your discharge process saying, well, so-and-so did this and, you know, they're gay. So we got to get rid of them. But I was fortunate enough that that changed very quickly. But I remember feeling like I remember having a conversation with my mom where she said, you better be careful. That's a rule. You can not just lose your job, but lose your potential for future employment if somebody decides they want to use that against you. So keep your mouth shut. You know, she's not trying to be hateful, but she was trying to warn me and say, you know, we love you no matter what. But they don't. They don't care that you're my kid. And I think you're the best. Can tell my other four sisters that I am the best. <laughs> but uh, no, it was it was very isolating because you you can't let too too many people close. And most people really didn't care. Most of the people that worked in close proximity to you that you did trust do your daily job would be like, I don't care. You come to work every day. I don't have a problem with it. But I wasn't outspoken about it. And I don't know for sure if that's affected how I operate today because I'm not super loud about it, but I also don't hide it. But yeah, it was looking back, just like somebody thought that that was an okay thing. They're like, well, we can't necessarily ban people from the military that are part of the LGBTQ plus community, but we'll just make this rule so they can serve, but be quiet about it. And you mentioned something that Featherstone, she was on the podcast last month, and she said the same thing, that it was like, it was dependent on like who your boss was and if they got mad at you. And it wasn't like everybody was treated equally. So it was like, there was this rule, but it wasn't put into effect the same way. And it was based on like, if people liked you or if they didn't, and it didn't really have anything to do with your sexual orientation. It had to do with like, if they liked you as a person or as, because someone with the same sexual orientation, they like them and they wouldn't say anything. But then if they didn't like you, then they'd be like, you have to get out. I think that is the part that I don't think enough people realize or understand. Don't ask, don't tell. It sounds good in theory, not actually that it sounds good. But you know, like if you're not part of that community and you're just like, oh, that's fine. They could serve. And then, but if you like hear the stories and then you hear about like how it was used as a discrimination tactic and not in the LGBTQT community, but in the like, I don't like you. So I'm going to make it so that you have to get out. And like, that's just wrong. Oh yeah. 100%. And too, like, if you look at a lot of employment stuff, I don't know how, how much other people who did get a, a different type of discharge had to go back and change the discharge paperwork, or even if they had the energy to, 
or the means to. But if you say that you served in the military because you can't really lie about that, what are you going to say? You were in jail. You're homeless. You know what I mean? And you have a different type of discharge based on that rule at the time. You have to put what your discharge was because they're going to ask you, was it an honorable discharge? There's no other options. If you say no, <laughs> they're going to ask you to explain and some some employers won't care and some might. You know, it's things are certainly better than they were probably 20 years ago, but the fight's not over. And there's just people that don't understand, like, the impact of laws like that and bias like that. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I think the long-term impact, like, it's not just affecting their ability to serve in the military, but now they have a discharge and it's less than honorable. And so, and you can't lie about that because it's on an application. And then if they find, ask why, like, you're giving away personal information that you technically don't have to, but you can't be just like, well, it doesn't matter why it's not honorable because then they're going to be like, okay. Yeah. So, yeah, there's so many, like, I think, that's why it's so important to talk about these stories because I guess the media, the way that they like tell the story, they tell it either like a news level, but not like a story level. And they don't get into the intimate details on like how it affects someone's life. Besides like the personal aspect of like you having to know that you had to keep that hidden luckily for not very long. Yeah. Yeah. I was lucky and it didn't really change. That's the other thing too, is just because the rule changed. And generally speaking, there was a lot of people that really didn't care, at least in my personal experience. I can't speak for everybody else, but there's still people where it bothered them. So they would find other things to pick on you about or other things to get you in trouble for. They couldn't technically get you on this thing, but they can get you on this other thing. The discrimination continued, but in another way. I'm learning a lot about the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment, and I just read Uncomfortable Conversations with a Black Man, which is a great book. And all of this is, like, tying into, like, all the things that they did in the South after the Civil War and how they were like, oh, this is a law, but we're going to add this rule and this rule so that you can't vote. And, like, it's really fascinating, the dynamics and how, how much... You can't just change a law at the surface level. There's so much more that has to be done. You can't just be like, oh, we made a law. Everything's great now. It's like, no, there's still a lot more work to do. Yeah, people were trained to think and act a certain way. And that's something that you actively have to catch, which I bought that book, by the way. It's my next read. So it's so good. I, I got it on Audible and I, I listened to the whole thing over the weekend. Awesome. And if you're listening, um, he has a YouTube series also called Uncomfortable Conversations with a Black Man. It is excellent. It's so good. I might have another uh, Patreon account that I follow. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know if he has Patreon, but you bought the book. I mean, that's one of the ways you can support authors is buying their book. So definitely. Thank you so much for being open and sharing about that. I I just get so fascinated and it's just interesting the timing because we're we're watching Lincoln at home and learning about like what it took to get the 13th amendment passed and then I'm doing all this research and then I read that book and so and I didn't realize the parallels until we were talking about it and all the ripple effects of like and like why we're still dealing with racism in so many different ways because of like, you can't just pass a law and be like, okay, everything's good. Yeah, it's it's 100% like the same thing. Well, I can't say 100% the same thing, but it, 
there's a lot of parallels between that and, and racism and colorism. And you can't just, if, if some generations are hurt, they're going to pass that on to their kids and to their grandkids. And it may not be to the same extent, but it's still there and it still causes damage to the people that those kids now interact with. And so that's the hard part to get people to understand and to actually say, I hear you. Yeah. I'm so glad that we had that conversation because I think it will give people a lot of insight and clarity. So let's talk a little bit more about your transition and what that was like. Did you, you felt, I feel like you, it was really fast because you kind of were like trying to decide and then you went home at Thanksgiving and we're like, oh, my mom's really sick. I'm going to get out of the Navy. And then you said like six months later, you were out. Yep. So were you ready to get out? Like, as in like ready to get a career? It was like, if you can imagine like those memes with the dumpster fire and they just put the year on it, like that was my transition. And it wasn't until almost three years after I had transitioned out and was a civilian that I felt as if I was where I was supposed to be professionally because I did not plan. I did not have time to plan. And I did to myself. Like I didn't think forward enough and it was all very reactive. And if I had spent more time being proactive, then I would have been in a better position if something had occurred. And in this case it did, which I I realized I never specified what my mom had. So backtrack, I came home and decided that I was going to get out because my mom looked very sick and was sick. And her pancreas was failing because she actually was diabetic and she was not getting insulin. So once they gave her insulin, she was totally fine. It was probably about December, December, January, when we had figured out officially what was going on. So, but yes, it was very fast, the transition, and I was not prepared. (laughs) I did not have an idea of what I wanted to do. I had no mentors. I did not have time to do any internships. I didn't have any education, really. I had done some college to that point, but... I was just kind of like, well, you know, I might as well try to see if I can take this aviation thing outside of the military, even though I'm so tired of it. And I did set myself up. Aviation was going to be my backup career. And I had finally gotten a job two weeks, the last two weeks of my terminal leave, uh, working in a warehouse for $12 an hour and no benefits. That's what happens when you don't plan. Yeah, I think you have to start planning for your transition out of the military when you like join the military and like you said you didn't know when you were going to get out and then all of a sudden it was like oh I'm getting out because my family needs me and if you're like always thinking about what you're going to do then you can like get your school done or take whatever training or just be ready but I think it's really hard because the military trains you to like this is the mission this is your focus and you're like okay I don't matter But actually, you do matter because eventually, no matter if it's six years or 25 years, you're going to get out of the military and then you're going to have to transition. So many people, it's so hard to make that switch. I just wrote a blog post about how when I got out of the military, I had a really hard time knowing what I wanted. I still have a really hard time knowing what I want because I'm so used to the military being like, this is what you're doing. And I'm like, okay, 
Sarah, my business coach, said she gave me four questions. And the first one is, do I want to do this? And I'm like, I get to decide if I want to do something. And I think it really goes back to the military because you don't get to decide what you want to do. And like the longer you're in, the more you just suppress what you want. And you just accept, I'm moving to Florida. Okay, that's where we're moving. And you don't really think about like, oh, well, I really want it. It doesn't matter. You're going where they tell you and you're doing what they tell you. You're any extension of what the government wants to do, basically. Love Sarah. Hey, Sarah. She, She's great. But yeah, there's no... It's hard to plan and think of yourself when everything is geared around being in a team or being in a community and what the community needs, not what you need or what you want, because it doesn't matter. (laughs) What matters is this other thing that everyone's, they're giving you the tools, they're giving you the education, they're giving you the teammates and they're saying, go do this. And you're like, okay, as a team. And you're right. (laughs) It doesn't matter if you don't want to move to Florida. You're going. So you said it took about three years to get where you wanted to be. Was there anything that was like specific that made it so that you turned into the place that you wanted to be? Or was it, it just took you that much time to get where you wanted to be? Kind of both. So part of it is as an aircraft uh, maintenance professional, in order to work on airplanes and be have more flexibility and choice, you want to have your airframe and power plant license. And that basically is the Federal Aviation Administration who is under the Department of Transportation, they grant you the powers legally to complete maintenance on an aircraft and deem it airworthy. And if I had known about that ahead of time, I could have, by my three-year mark, doing that job roughly about three years, if you do both of those pieces concurrently, the difference is airframe is literally anything that's not the engine. So... If you have an A license, you can sign off anything on the airframe. So that's electrical, that's hydraulics, that's doing sheet metal work. If it's uh, power plants, it's engine only. So if I have to take a component off the engine that's engine specific and sign it off under my license, I can do that because I have both the airframe and the power plant license. And if I would have done that, I would have qualified for my uh, inspection inspection ticket which you have to have three years using your, your A&P in order to qualify. So then you qualify, study, take your test, and pass. It's a written and a oral and a practical. And I would have been in a much better position to translate into civil aviation rather than come out and be like, oh, I have to get this license. And, you know, if, if I had figured out I wanted to do that as soon as I got out, then that would have been a different story. It was a backup plan and I had set myself up really well to kind of move into that. But if I would have had it done beforehand, it would have been a much better option. You know, I would have had, I would have been a more attractive candidate to companies, but you don't know what you don't know. Yeah, that's really important to think about. When I was in, I got my civil engineering, professional engineering license, which I didn't need in the military, but I did need if I was going to leave the military. And even though I didn't use it, I'm really glad that I got it because it gave me the flexibility when I got out if I had wanted to do engineering because I already had my professional engineering. So that's like great advice for someone who's in the military or joining the military. Figure out if there's like a civilian equivalent that you need to get and then figure out, can I do it 
while I'm in the military and get that certification. And the funny story is in college, I knew I needed to take the training, but I was like, whatever, I'm joining the Air Force. doesn't matter. And so I didn't. And then when I was in, they were like, everyone was like, you should get that training because you don't know what the future is going to hold. And so I went back and like, it would have been better to take the initial test while I was in college when everybody else was like all the other seniors. And instead I was like, I joined the military. I don't need that. And in reality, you should get your civilian equivalent just because you never know what's going to happen. And then, and then you're set up. I'm not a professional engineer anymore. But you could be. Yeah. I just have to pay all the back fees <laughs> in Ohio. Right. Yeah. But it's good to have that certification and that training. And if something happens to my husband, I have that to fall back on because I have that degree and that training that I can use if I ever need to go back into engineering. That's great advice. So speaking of advice, what advice would you give to young women who are considering joining the military? Oh, man. I would definitely... So the military is cool because you can pick a job depending on how you score on your ASVAB, this magical test that deems how much aptitude you have in one area over another. We'll say it that way because some people say, I got a 34, so I'm dumb. doesn't mean you're dumb. You just have an aptitude in a specific area. Maybe you don't have as many options, but training can rectify that. So don't ever let that hold you back. That, that can always be retaken and redone later. And every branch of service has that option. Don't, don't ever let somebody tell you that you can't because they're lying. They're trying to sell you something else. But certainly I would say spend time trying to figure out what you really like, but definitely take the time to set yourself up to do the civilian equivalent if there is one. If there's not one, you need to spend the time to figure out basically what I want to do what is the qualifications and the education for somebody that has that type of position and how do I get there and make a plan? Because you're more likely to follow through with it if you write it down and create a, a process and a system rather than just waking up every day and being like, I'm here today and this is what I'm going to do because I feel like it. You know, there's a lot of days I don't feel like doing a lot of things. Unless you're a very special type of person, most of us can't just do that. That's really good advice. And I like that you built on the, like, if there isn't a civilian equivalent, what are you going to do when you leave the military? Does that mean that you should start working on your degree so that you can go to college and finish your degree with your GI Bill when you leave the military? Or is there like a tech school or training program? There's so much available with the internet. It was a lot harder before the internet existed and you couldn't do all these things online and, and you had to actually be in person. So... Thank you so much for being on the podcast and for supporting me on Patreon and <laughs> reminding me to tell people that they can go to patreon.com slash women of the military to support me. I really appreciate it. And thank you so much. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. This week's episode of Women of the Military Podcast. Do you love all things Women of the Military Podcast? Become a subscriber so you never miss an episode and consider leaving a review. It really helps people find the podcast and helps the podcast to grow. Are you still listening? You could be a part of the mission of telling the stories of military women by joining me on Patreon at patreon.com slash women of the military or you can order my book Women of the Military on Amazon. Every dollar helps
helps to continue the work I am doing. Are you a business owner? Do you want to get your product or service in front of the Women of the Military podcast audience? Get in touch with the Women of the Military podcast team to learn more. All the links on how you can support Women of the Military podcast are located in the show notes. Thanks again for listening and for your support. Thank you.